Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. It's one of the things that disappoints me most is some of the most vocal fans of video games out there have some of the least desire to tell the people making their games, you can make things better, you could improve X, Y, and Z, you can be held to a higher standard. And being critical of the things we love doesn't mean we don't love them. It means mm. we recognize they can be better and we want them to be better. Yeah, it means we love them so much that we're impassioned enough to talk about things like this. Like, exactly. if we didn't care, we wouldn't say anything. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronoun she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns David. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Pixel Therapy. And in case you forgot, it is still October. It's still October. That's right. The month that doesn't part quit. Spooked over part two. Yeah. <laughs> Spooked over part two. Spooky. Spooky Pixel Therapy today again for you folks. Uh, we're going to kick things off with just the warmest of thank yous so to warm. our top-notch supporters, Val and Genevieve. Thank you both for subscribing at the Name in the Credits tier on Patreon for the month of September. If you, yes, you, lovely listener, want <laughs> to get your name in the credits, then hop on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can unlock monthly bonus episodes for just $2 a month or chip in a little extra to show your support and get a shout-out in every episode. October's spooky Patreon bonus <laughs> episode was about our game of the year so far, and I may be a little biased, but I do think it was worth the $2. <laughs> Uh, I think we are definitely worth $2, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo, $1 each. Remember, though, if you're a fan of us here on Pixel Therapy, there are lots of ways to support the show, including sharing us with your friends and family and rating rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you ever have a question or if you just uh, have a thought that you'd like to share with us, we would love to hear from you. So send us an email over at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. All right. It's time to get cozy, to get a little spooky, mm-hmm. to pull up your armchair, to sip your apple cider. Oh my God. I really was like, I need to pick up your mulled cider. I, you just yes. took the words yeah. out of my mind. I just Through ripped them right out. Because right we're out. doing a seance. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Keeping on theme. Let's go. Let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, how are you? Well, Jamie, something very exciting happened today. Yes. Actually, I, I feel bad, but your husband and my partner... They conspired. They conspired to... I was a witness to the conspiration. <laughs> to the conspiration. <laughs> the conspiration, yes. A little too close to constipation. I feel like that's probably not the right word. The conspiratory actions that they were both committing. <laughs> the conspiring. Yes. That the, sounds, like, sounds like a scary movie. We're yeah, still on brand. That's right. Um, well, they conspired to build me a gaming PC, which I am just absolutely like so floored and touched, like the most thoughtful thing that anyone has ever put together for me. And I, I don't know, I love that 
that Aaron and Colt worked on it together because it's like, it's just fun for me. I feel very loved. Um, but I was, I feel bad because <laughs> I was opening it and my yeah. partner was like, Oh my God, I'm so excited for you to open this. Uh-huh. Um, I, I picked out a, like a, a really special one. I think you might like it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And I opened it. And the first thing I saw when I tore some of the plastic away was this, it was like a black logo, like a black kind of Norse shape with a cutout of Mjolnir. And I mm-hmm. immediately was like, because oh, I thought <laughs> I thought for a second that it was like some kind of like God of War, like gaming oh, PC. And damn. I was about to poop my pants. Um, <laughs> I opened up the rest of it and it's not necessarily that, but what it is, is um, it kind of, there's a side of it. And I'm so sorry to the PC owners. I'm, I'm basically a brand new like as of today very baby <laughs> pc gamers so i don't know any of the words for any of the things little pc baby yeah but be like, gentle <laughs> he got me a keyboard that has rainbow lights i'm very excited about that don't know anything about keyboards but super excited but the but side of up. the computer it has this cutout it has like a clear side and then it looks kind of almost like stained glass and mm-hmm. it's yggdrasil the tree of life um wow. and it is this whole like kind of um colorful uh, picture and it'll like be you'll the lights inside of the computer box the tower <laughs> the C- CPU tower right uh, sure <laughs> don't come for me please I'm um, a PC baby too I don't know it has <laughs> like rainbow I don't know yeah this, this is why um, it has rainbow lights so it'll shine through the, the kind of stained glass looking um, part and so it's beautiful I'm very excited um, I think for us we had I'm just, it reminds me of um, just spending lockdown playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla Mm. together. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just a really, it was a game that really brought my partner and I together. It was my partner's first, really first PlayStation games. um, And kind of nice that his first PlayStation game got to be in the PS5. Um, But it was a game that we both, uh, it's very rare that we play the same games. Like he's very much into kind of resource gathering or expansion or like kind of um, high level, like civilization type games where you're kind of mm. playing God and doing a bunch of things at once. And mm-hmm. I'm very like narrative driven, visual novels, RPGs. Um, and he watched me play God of War, but he kind of was like, mm, this isn't really for me. But playing mm-hmm. Valhalla, it had that mix of, uh, I think because you're sort of, you're conquesting and you're building up your settlement and there's a lot of, it kind of scratched that itch for him. Um, but yeah. we both were sort of swept up in the story and it kind of felt like a big, uh, really, a really happy time. And I mean, it's still very happy, but it was a very, ha- <laughs> another happy moment in our relationship. Yeah. And so um, I just, I'm really happy and really excited. I can't wait for to play a game with you. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I guess I'm going to play God of War on the PC in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> They're releasing it now. <laughs> You'll just, it'll just be your God with of all War the machines. Mods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to put Kratos in like, I don't know, some kind of, I'll import Sims outfits and i don't know i just i've been seeing all these memes about people being like oh my god with god of war on pc like just imagine the possibilities for modding they're literally Um, endless (laughs) and hey i mean i I mean in other pc exciting news it looks like um for all you stardew valley fans out there um the developer concerned ape is working on a new game which is just Mm -hmm. like it's called haunted chocolatier and it sounds Mm -hmm. like um it's a game called Moonlighter that kind of combines um, like owning a shop, 
meeting townsfolk and then dungeon crawling. And it's looking like mm-hmm. it's kind of bringing in a, a more of that element. Um, yeah. So that might be a game that's fun to play on PC too. Cause I did find that a Stardew definitely works on console, but it's just yeah. not the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. I played Stardew on uh, PS4 and on the switch and watched mm. my partner play it on PC and just get through things so much quicker <laughs> yeah. than I could just it's like, like oh. click, 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 click. <laughs> and it's like, Oh wow. You just, you just watered like your entire, <laughs> yeah. you didn't have to walk up to each individual plant and pour water on it. Mm, damn. Must be nice. <laughs> the thing, I don't know though. You know, I've got a, a slightly better PC now too. Mm. Um, I don't know why I'm I'm downplaying it. It's not um it's not like top tier, but it's a good mid-range uh gaming PC setup now. But I just don't like playing games on PC. Yeah, tell me more. I don't know. It's there's something about I, I think it's because I associate it for for one thing, my my PC setup is like in the office and I work from home four mm. days a week. And so like this is work. Mm-hmm. And it's also podcasts. Like I come in here and do the podcasts, mm-hmm. but this is not comfy, relaxed time. Right. Like, I want to play the games that are on PC. I've bought several PC games, but then the actual, like, idea of sitting down at my computer with the mouse and keyboard and playing the mm. game, it, like, makes me gag a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. it just sounds exhausting. Um, I don't want to be this close to the screen mm. all the time, especially not after, like, basking in the glow for eight-plus hours already all day. Uh, it, it, yeah, I don't know. So, I've I've really been... There's something about that Steam. Is it the Steam Deck? Is that what it's called? What's it's that? Very appealing to me. Uh, hold on. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, this it's called the Steam Deck. It's an upcoming handheld gaming computer developed <gasps> by Valve Corporation. <gasps> it's basically a Switch, but it's for all of your fucking PC games. It looks like the fucking Sega ge- Game Gear. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Best handheld console ever. These things, like, I don't even know when people are going to be able to actually start getting their hands on them. The release date says December 2021, but you have to, like, pre-order it, and then it's, like, being released in waves. It's also stupid expensive. It's basically, it's not as much as, like, buying a whole other gaming PC, but close wow. enough to be, like, I'm not going to just run out and buy this thing. But this seems, like, much closer to what I would want. It's mm. Because, like I said, it's basically a Nintendo Switch. You could go play it on the console I don't know. I've also spent a lot of time looking into like there's ways you can stream your PC gaming to your TV. I don't know, it's all very convoluted. And I'm just like, mm. I've got so many games to play on the three other consoles that I have in my home. Do I really need to? But then like, you know, that cool indie game comes to PC and is yeah. not out on anything else. And I'm like, but I want to play you. Absolutely. Uh, what you said about the distance from the screen really resonated. Like I really, I like being able to lounge on the couch, relax mm-hmm. my body. Um, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm two feet away from a screen every day. Yeah. Um, and just, I don't want to sit here hunched over my computer. I feel that. Okay, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let I'm gonna let my partner set up the gaming computer and try it out before <laughs> I'm sitting here like. <laughs> Console gaming is better, but we'll see. And I think you're absolutely right. Like it's games like um, like Before Your Eyes that came out earlier this mm-hmm. year. This game that looks absolutely incredible and is controlled by your eye movements using mm-hmm. a webcam. It's like, ooh, this is the kind of stuff that I've been missing out on. Um, yeah. You know. I do think, like everyone already knows who PC games, just that the beauty of it is how much more accessible it is for like small developers to kind of yeah. build and release games. So I'm hoping to 
up my indie level even further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're a PC gamer and you have tips for like how to make it a more cozy experience mm. or mm-hmm. how to like fight back against some of this stuff we're identifying yeah, that's us. like pain points for us, not on drag. Like, I want to, I want to hear the tips. I want to <laughs> like hear how to make this a more cozy and comfortable experience that doesn't feel like I'm sitting at my work machine. Absolutely. Um, if folks have have feedback on that, so yeah, send us send us an email because mm-hmm. I am curious how folks do it. Maybe gaming will change our relationships to our computers. We'll associate them with pleasure. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that and like quitting my job. But, yeah. but, but Spencer, what are, what are you playing these days? <laughs> let's, let's actually talk about the games that we are playing instead of what we will be playing. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. Absurd machines. So as I mentioned, I believe on our last Patreon episode, I've really been on this um, horror kick. Like I'm trying to... Um, I'm at this point in my life where I'm really able to enjoy and access horror in a way that feels good and like a release instead of something that contributes to my trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so along those lines, you know, I was thinking about, I I think this year is really the most that I've sort of explored horror games because I think I've associated them all with the the, the main titles that we hear of. And so I just assume the whole genre isn't for me. Um, But I played some great games this year. I played Oxenfree. uh, I played Inside. um, I played... Uh, an indie game called Dark, D-A-R-Q. Um, and I played 12 Minutes, which I didn't enjoy, but would still <laughs> fall in that sort of psychological thriller genre. Um, these are all games that I would highly recommend folks check out for sort of bringing their own... Except for 12 own, Minutes. Well, except for 12 Minutes, yeah. Check out Oxenfree, Inside, and Dark. Uh, all great <laughs> indie titles that approach um, the genre in such radically different ways, different sort of platforms. Um, like I would think of Oxenfree as more of a visual novel... Um, sort of walking simulator. I would think of inside as like a platforming side scroll. Um, and I guess dark would also fall into that category. Um, but one of the things I really loved about dark is that, um, it was really unique in that it was about the world of dreams. And so you would, um, uh, you would play and you would kind of be able to enter this parallel world, um, and sort of, uh, like for folks who have played Ratchet and Clank, A Rift Apart, um, just this dynamic of in an alternate reality influencing objects or people that then change uh, the circumstances in the other reality that you're in mm, and that kind of mm-hmm. dual focus um, just brings a whole new level of complexity um, to these game worlds. And so that leads me to the game I have been playing, which is called The Medium. Ooh, yeah, okay. Um, the Medium came out earlier this year. It's by developer Bloober Team. Um, it was released for PC and Xbox uh, around January 2021. And then just this September, it came out on PS5. I played it using Game Pass. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Thanks, Xbox. Best um, deal in gaming. Truly the best deal in gaming. Like, literally on the PlayStation 5 store, uh, the Medium is on sale for, like, $39. Um, but I think my monthly payments for the Xbox, including two years of Game Pass, is like $34. So just downloading mm-hmm. the game on Game Pass is like already a better deal than getting it on the PlayStation Store. So I'm slowly yeah, becoming wild. an Xbox <laughs> gamer. <laughs> but um, the medium is really fascinating. I would um, describe it as sort of like a cross between Life is Strange and Resident Evil. Um, okay. It sort of has that aspect of, um, you know, your person... Um, you're walking around these familiar environments, uh, like a home or going to um, other locations. Like it's set in sort of like a, a real world, realistic um, environment. 
Um, but there's also a lot of picking up objects, rotating them, examining them to find their secrets, looking around, looking at the details of things, which feels very Resident Evil. Um, mm-hmm. And it's incredibly atmospheric, um, cinematic even, I'd say. I was... Um, one thing that I found very charming and that I think really set the tone um, is that the game starts with a cold open. Um, you are a woman who her whole life has had this condition that she refers to. Um, and she doesn't know what's happening, but what she finds is that very randomly she'll get these splitting headaches um, and she's able to see the other world. Um the world of spirits, the like what's going on behind the veil of our normal day-to-day life. And she's able to enter that uh, parallel reality to sort of help the spirits rest, to find peace um, and ultimately to release the bad energy or painful energy that's been manifested in these places where spirits are congregating. Um, It, it's funny, the, this morning I've been doing this thing where um, no one wants to watch horror movies with me at home because they're all babies. <laughs> just kidding. They're just less traumatized than me. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, so this morning I, you know, woke up uh, like four or five and I thought I would watch um, Things Heard and Seen on Netflix. Um, okay. It's a new horror with Amanda Seyfried and James Norton, if people like actors. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a, super high level. It's about um, a couple that moves into a home in the country from the city in upstate New York. um, And uh, they find that things in the house are not what they seem. And there may be more going on uh, with spirits beyond trying to make contact with them. Um, But the movie sort of uh, has this through line um, where the the two main characters are artists. and the painting The Valley of the Shadow of Death by George Innes comes up a lot. Uh, if folks look it up, it's sort of, um, he was a painter who was inspired by um, the Swedish philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg. And this philosopher basically believed that um, for every naturally occurring thing in our physical world, there is a spiritual counterpart. Um, and we attract the energy that we manifest. So good attracts good spirits and evil attracts evil spirits. Um, and heaven and hell are manifestations of the behavior that we enact in our day-to-day life. So if we're good, we will see the gates of heaven when we die. And if we're bad, we will see the gates of hell. Um, but that death is not an ending, but just the beginning of the next phase of, of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought that that was very thematically on point because when I picked up the medium, um, I see those three lines as well. Um, I think the game does something really fascinating in that it actually generates a split screen when she, um, when uh, your character, the medium, um, I forget her name, <laughs> um, <laughs> when she has when she starts to see both sides uh, of the world, um, you have the kind of physical world on one side and the spiritual world on the other. Um, and you can interact on either side. Like it'll say like, you can use X and Y to interact with things on this side and use A and B. If I hope that's what the Xbox letters are on this oh boy. side. Don't test me and, on that. Um, you know, interacting with something here. And if it's, if it's, if it's in the metaphysical world, it can manifest in the real world. And so it creates these really interesting puzzle situations, um, as well as, you know, this, this 
this really interesting, surreal, supernatural atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if this is definitely, I'm proud of myself because this is definitely the scariest game I've played. It's definitely mm-hmm. got some light jump scares. It's got some very creepy surroundings. Um, I'm someone who in real life is terribly afraid of the dark. And there are lots of scenes where you're suddenly plunged into darkness and have to mm. find your way out. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's like, I'm really excited. I feel like this is a personal growth moment for me because I was someone who I think a year ago would say, I don't play horror video games. And then Mm -hmm. I had a great time watching Janet Garcia, um, AKA Gameonisis, um, playing or Gameonisis, depending on how you pronounce Dionysus. (laughs) But um, (laughs) she was playing Resident Evil Village on Twitch. And I, and I found that I, the act of sort of, going through it as a community uh, just really made it so much more enjoyable and and took the overt, like, panic-inducing fear out of it and mm, made it into mm-hmm. more of a fun, um, just kind of, like, spicy fear activity. <laughs> um, and so graduating to now playing the medium on my own, um, you know, it's scary, but I'm not feeling physically threatened in the way I used to. I'm not feeling the stress start to rise. I'm mm-hmm. just sort of enjoying um, interacting with it in a way that still feels safe. I think part of it is that um, you can, you, you're basically just walking around and interacting with things and you okay. don't walk very fast, which immediately <laughs> clues into me like, okay, this must, not, this must not be a game where I'm going to have to do much running away and, and time-based, like someone's going to grab me activities yeah. because this walking speed would be slow AF. <laughs> so that was like actually pretty comforting. <laughs> <laughs> like she's not in any hurry and neither yeah. am I. <laughs> Absolutely. But like within the first 10 minutes, of the game like this girl works in a morgue and you have to like you know put someone to rest and you're like pulling out corpses from the Ooh. from the dead people refrigerator and so I was like wow okay uh I'm doing good <laughs> <laughs> proud of you <laughs> thank you thank you my friend so yeah um getting into the horror thing I'll definitely let folks know like how I feel as I continue to play um you know being a very cinematic, um, but also a game produced by a smaller studio. There are some things like, uh, you know, there's very particular ways you need to approach a, an object for the button to show up for you to interact mm, with mm-hmm. it, which can sometimes be frustrating. Um, the environments and the sort of cinematic nature of it, it's all very beautiful. Um, but, you know, the movements, the hands and things, are con- it still looks kind of like doll, doll joints on it, like you know, there's there's not that yeah. totally fluid um, movements, but I really find that stuff easy to overlook. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's just got a really cool feel, and it's a game that I feel like I heard about, but didn't really just kind of fell off my radar. So I'm excited for the chance to be engaging with it now. How are you finding the narrative? Because one of the uh, like critical points that I had heard about the game was that the narrative was not very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I feel that. Like, I think um, it, like, the game just sort of feels like uh, the character, I mean, maybe I need to, I haven't finished yet, so maybe I need to get even further in to to understand, like, what we're we're building towards. Um, Mm -hmm. But it does sort of feel like things are just happening, like... I don't know how to describe it. It's like the character is is showing up places to to help and is and is 
responding to a phone call from a man who calls her and is like, I really need your help. Um, and I also might be able to explain this mysterious power you have that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, other than that, it's like, okay, why am I risking my life? Why am I, what's this place? Like who mm-hmm. are any of these people? Um, so it, it, um, it just kind of feels like, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I necessarily feel like I'm connecting with the character or that I partic- like it's not not feeling particularly deep yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm still sort of curious to see if it will give me more, and if I'm just if I just need to be patient with the the way the narrative is building, or if I'll find that it falls flat by the end. That remains to be seen. Yeah, and like I don't know, I'm definitely as a genre, I think horror and and thriller stuff the it's very experiential right so the that mystery and how it pulls you through can Mm -hmm. often be more important than the end narrative payoff or at least uh if the experience of going through it was good enough it can make up for a bad narrative payoff absolutely yeah I'm, i'm curious to see how those two things pair together i do think that truly good storytelling in in horror is rare to find Mm -hmm. where you feel totally uh, fulfilled by all aspects of the story. I I don't even, I could probably count on one hand, the number of horror experiences I've had that, that checked all the boxes, but um, sometimes it can still be a good time if it pulls you through it in the right way. So that's cool. Excited to hear uh, how things are when you finish it, if you are still as high on it. I know that's my struggle this year is actually finishing games. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, thanks, buddy. What are you playing? What am I playing? Well, first, I'm I'm playing a little of a lot. Like I've been playing very uh, shallowly. A word I've been playing Mm. very uh, in a very shallow way lately. <laughs> Sorry, she said yeah. shallow people, and I'm gay. I did. What do you want? <laughs> that was beautiful, though. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you graced us with that. Uh, but I'm experiencing some like gaming ennui, mm. <laughs> if I could put a label on it. I just it, I want to play games, but I feel like what my head wants to play and what my heart wants to play are at odds with each yeah. other because my head is like, Jamie, here's this list of games that you will truly love that are really interesting, uh, smaller indie games that you should try to play. Uh, before the end of the year that mm-hmm. would that you would have interesting conversations about on the podcast that you would enjoy if you could bring yourself to play them. And what my heart wants to play is me Far run around six. kill things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What my heart wants to play is like I just I I think it, it part of it is like this time of year. And we talked about this yeah. a little bit in the podcast last year, but there is something about the fall and the way we've been conditioned. I don't I don't know if it's the conditioning or if it's that it's a natural gravitation towards this, but in the fall, we're used to getting big triple mm. game releases for mm-hmm. the big open world with all of the things to check off mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, the, the huge map and you're going to go do all the things and you're going to lose yourself for two months. The Red Dead Redemption 2 Horizon uh, Horizon didn't come out in the fall, but my point is like there's something about this time of year, a yeah. Skyrim, like th- this yeah. is the time of year I want to play the big Western style RPG and just be gone mm-hmm. in a different world. Goodbye. 
And I'm definitely hurting a little bit because I don't feel like we have that Mm -hmm. this year. The closest thing that I have to it is Far Cry 6, as you alluded to, which I am dabbling in. And it checks some of those boxes, but I don't I don't really want a first person shooter for this. Mm -hmm. And I also don't really want a shooty shoot Mm -hmm. either. Like the shooting mechanics are not what I love about Red Dead Redemption. Mm -hmm. Like and, and Far Cry really what Far Cry has to offer is shooty shoot <laughs> yeah and and blowy uppy <laughs> and you know Boom. i'm i want to get my hands on a bow and arrow and then maybe it'll feel a little bit better and it does have horseback riding in far cry 6 which okay. i'm weirdly really like enjoying a lot it's first person horseback riding too which is unique i don't know if i've played any other games that offered that but with paired with the dual sense yeah. on the ps5 and the way you can feel the horse running i'm really mm. enjoying that aspect of it but yeah so so i've been i've been playing far cry 6 but it's not like it's not really what i want to be playing uh mentally it's just like what it's just giving me whatever it is i need right now yeah but just what on I the have... horseback before you <laughs> yeah, move no, on okay, just on yeah, the yeah. horseback riding um what's is it is it really shaky like how do you not get car sick with the first person horseback riding the camera movement actually is not that shaky they mm. it's it's got kind of about like a rhythm to the yeah. way the camera moves so there is camera movement but it's not i don't feel like i'm being jerked all over the place um like you would probably actually feel like if you were <laughs> on a horse uh they did they did a certain way to balance it where it, you're kind of going in a rhythm with the That's horse cool. it's kind of like an up and down rhythm um that works well and then being able to actually feel the hooves hitting the ground through the dual sense uh, has a has a really nice effect uh, that that I like a lot. You can't have your own horse. Uh-huh. Uh, you can get custom like horse skins and stuff, but you don't have like a horse that you call that's always your horse. It just feels like there's a bunch of horses and you just mm-hmm. find them and you can jump on their back and ride them places. So again, it's like it's not quite what I want, right? Because what you want is the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you want cake and someone gives you, I don't, I'm going to just stop this metaphor because I don't have a good end to it. It's just not quite what I want. So if you want cake and someone gives you the like <laughs> store bought, like it almost tastes like chemicals cake versus one just built by or made by your grandma who loves you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like, if you're hungry for pizza and then you get like a cold slice of like grocery store mm. bakery grocery store deli pizza. Yeah. It's like is good it still pizza? It's pizza? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not what you really want. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Far Cry Six, not what I really wanted, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's enough. all it's all I have right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping that maybe Guardians of the Galaxy will come out next week Ooh. and that'll grab me. It's still not quite what I'm wanting, wanting, but it's a bigger experience. It's got fun characters, so we'll see how that goes. But the game that one of the games that I have been forcing myself to play mm. <laughs> around Far Cry 6 and trying to get into uh, is Outer Wilds, the Echoes of the Eye expansion. Uh, anyone who has been listening to the podcast for some time knows that Outer Wilds, uh, which is a, an independent game uh, produced by, or uh, yeah, uh, published by Annapurna Interactive and developed by Mobius Digital Games, uh, released in 2019. I played it in early 2020, absolutely blown away by it. One of my favorite games of all time. Uh, this 
just a few weeks ago, they released what they're calling the first and only expansion for Outer Wilds. Um, just for some context for the original game, uh, it's a tough game to explain what it even is. So I actually found a really helpful quote Great. Uh, from my idol, Austin Walker, uh, in the review he wrote about it for Vice. He says, if you force me to explain the game in a single paragraph, it would go like this. Outer Wilds is a first-person exploration game that casts you as a fledgling astronaut and archaeologist. You travel between six worlds and a handful of other astronomical objects in order to piece together the history of a missing culture, stop the destruction of the solar system, and solve the mystery of a Groundhog Day-esque time loop that you're stuck in. While there's the occasional jumping puzzle, it's mostly a game about walking around and flying between beautiful planets. There's no combat though there are hazards to scout with a camera probe you can launch around corners and into dark caves, and there is a limited dialogue with NPCs, though what there is is well used. In an elevator ride, maybe you'd say the Outer Wilds is Majora's, Mask time, Majora's Mask's time loop meets the epistolary storytelling of Gone Home hmm. meets the Golden Age sci-fi cover aesthetics of No Man's Sky. Hmm. But this is so reductive, sanding off all of Outer Wilds' most unique edges in order to sell something frighteningly fresh in the comfortable uniform of the familiar. Wow. Yeah, he's a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> I would never be able to put it that way. But uh, Outer Wilds remains to this day one of my favorite games of all time just an incredibly unique experience of gameplay and if what i just read from austin is selling you on that at all and you haven't checked this game out please go play it Uh, i am going to have to give like just some very light spoilers uh for this uh, game so if you want to hear nothing about it then jump ahead to the interview but some light spoilers now for outer wilds So in Outer Wilds, as Austin referenced, you're in a time loop, a Groundhog Day-esque time loop, which is that every 22 minutes, the sun explodes, destroying the entire universe. In the original base game, you're exploring the whole world, what the, or sorry, the whole universe. What the expansion is about is that there is a, basically a new area that they've added to the universe that you can locate, and then within this new area there's an entirely new puzzle and mystery of a missing Mm. culture to solve. So it's almost, uh, I was reading another review of it and they were kind of comparing, they were saying it's almost like a sequel to the original out of original outer wilds. That's kind of tucked within the base game. And it's like still like a 10 hour experience plus 10 hours plus. Uh, So it's pretty meaty. Mm. And of course they, this expansion, like you unlock it in the most Outer Wilds way possible. Outer Wilds, like it does not handhold you at all. You start the game, you get in your spaceship and you can just (laughs) go to space and the game doesn't tell you what to do beyond that. It's like, just go figure it out. Go explore Mm. space. The only tracking that you have of anything that's happening is that as you find and experience things, anything notable, there'll be a little notification that says this is getting logged in your ship's log. And then you can go back to your ship's log and you can kind of trace. There's this very cool rumor map (laughs) that connects all of the different pieces that you're finding throughout the universe to each Mm. other. So you're kind of like piecing together this giant rumor map, but that's the only direction that you get. So to actually even access the expansion, uh, you know, I booted the game up. I jumped in my ship. I shot up into space expecting to see another planet. There'll be another planet here and I'll be able to just go to that. And that's how I'll find the expansion. 
there was nothing new. I spent the whole first loop just scooting around the universe, <laughs> like, what is here for me to find? And then I was like, okay, interesting. Then I went and pulled up a review and started reading. And the reviewer generously was like, I will give you one small hint. Uh, go back to the museum on Timberhearth, which is the planet that you start from. And yeah. when you start the game for the very first time, you go through this museum uh, to meet up with the scientist and get the launch codes to be able to launch into space. So I go back to this museum. Oh, there's a new exhibit at the mm. museum. That exhibit points you to another location on Timberhearth. That location then points you to another space part of space but and you find this thing i I don't want to spoil like what the thing is that you find but you would not find it (laughs) unless you followed this breadcrumb trail to find it like there's no way you could stumble upon it in space that alone like what this game does so beautifully is the laying of breadcrumbs and the feeling of just awe that you have every time you follow a lead and it pays off Mm -hmm. I've never played another game that's done anything like that. And I don't right now I'm really struggling to have the energy to keep coming back to that. But every time I do, I get rewarded. Mm. Uh, It's, it's just a, it's a fucking beautiful experience. And it, it consistently reminds me the game because it's the infinity of space trapped within this 22-minute time loop, it has this really powerful way of both making everything feel so expansive while still feeling finite so you never get overwhelmed. Mm. I, I think I've played lots of games where exploration is the main goal, and it, I don't usually get drawn to them because I feel overwhelmed by the amount of area I might have to cover. The genius of the time loop in Outer Wilds is that you're getting boundaries put around how far you can get from your starting point. And there's a way that like you can throw yourself into what you're doing because you know that 22 minutes is going to hit and it's all your, everything's going to get reset. I I was reading this uh, review from Nicole Clark at Polygon and I feel like uh, she kind of nails this, this feeling. She says, Mm. Where Outer Wilds' limited time frame used to feel like a punishment, I now see it as an opportunity because the player will always be restored to the starting gate after 22 minutes. There's more flexibility to be daring in exploration. I began throwing myself into planetary nooks and crannies. I knew I'd be restored to the starting spot by the end of the loop. So the threat of failure lost some of its weight. It was easier to swim into the heart of a cyclone knowing the end of the loop was approaching regardless. It was easier to recklessly wander into the depths of a mine knowing I couldn't get lost there forever. Though I still struggle with its challenging traversal and some of its eerie imagery, I have come to appreciate the way Outer Wilds uses time constraints to facilitate true exploration. Where other games might use exploration to reward a player with a collectible or a skill tree enhancement, Outer Wilds uses it as a pure vehicle for storytelling. Time loops allow the game to cut all other frills away, putting nothing between you, the vast expanse of space, and the fearless exploration of its greatest secrets, time and time again. Wow. I feel like, too, what that makes me think of is doing it that way, it retains, it always will retain the mystery and the mm-hmm. and the overwhelmingness of space. Because like you said, the fact that you can't get to that point unless you discover the breadcrumbs and the, the, the order of steps will, that will get you there, that the game doesn't tell, doesn't make any, you know, attempts to solve that for you or, or lay that path down for you. Um, there's always this sort of intrepid, like, uh, 
exploration quality that will never go away. And it, and it almost feels like it's truly containing its own worlds, worlds that you may never even see within the, within this game. It, it just makes the whole game feel endless and expansive mm-hmm. and mysterious um, in a way that feels really special and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to say about the expansion in particular, as I've been playing it, it, it has such a unique vibe to the original game, which I think is especially impressive because it's like it exists within the original game, <laughs> but it has its completely own uh, emotional impact in that it, when you play the original game, the universe is, as Austin said in his thing, it's it's mostly very empty. But there are explorers scattered across the universe. And by using a special device that you have, you can hear them playing music. They're each playing mm. an instrument. And if you get far enough out into space and you point the instrument back towards uh, back towards them, you can hear all of them playing together and you rec- realize that they're all playing the same song. They're playing Aww. different instruments, different parts of the same song that all come together into this this beautiful melody. And it it makes everything it makes it feel less lonely mm. because you can hear this music from anywhere that you are in the universe and feel connected to these folks who are spread out across the galaxy and who are playing this. In Echoes of the Eye, the place that you go, you can no longer hear the music. Mm. And it has this incredibly isolating feel to it. But at the same time, you're going through an area where you're very much picking through the remnants of a civilization. And without spoiling anything, there's a way that they are still present mm. um, that is both very creep. It's, it's very off-putting. You feel much closer to the folks that were previously here than you do when you're exploring the galaxy and finding the history of the Nomai, who were the people that had explored the galaxy before you. Um, but you feel very alone while you're doing it. And mm. it, it was just that simple decision to make the music not hearable. Yeah. Feels you, you feel like you're in a very different plane. And wow. yet at the same time, you're very close to these other folks who are much creepier. Interesting. Yeah. Ooh, spooky. So it's a good it's a good October poll mm-hmm. if you're in that spooky vibe Still season. Counts. Still counts. Still counts. It's a spooky game. I've definitely it's made me jump a few times uh, with some different different things that it's done. Uh, there's a there was a section I was in where the first time I was going through this area, I didn't realize that at a certain point in the time loop, water was going to come crashing through oh, somewhere, shit. and just the sound of the water. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> about maybe jump out of my skin. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway, folks should go play Outer Wilds. It's a good pull for spoopy season. Even the base game has areas that are pretty creepy, and I clearly am obsessed with the game and can't stop talking about it. <laughs> uh, I just love it so much. But we should go ahead and move over to our interview today, which is also a great bit of dialogue that y'all are going to really enjoy. Today we're talking with the lovely and insightful Laura Kate Dale. And like so many of our guests, Laura does an awful lot of things with her time. She's a gaming journalist, an author, a podcaster, a streamer, and a video game butt reviewer (laughs) who brings a deep and personal focus on representation and accessibility in games and the gaming industry to all of her work 
In our conversation with Laura, we touched on her upcoming novel, Who Hunts the Whale, which is a satirical exploration of exploitative AAA game development. We talked about the gamer identity and the problems caused by aligning one's personhood with the media you consume. And then we dove deep on To the Moon, uh, the game that Laura brought to discuss with us and one that had a dramatic impact on her both as a person and as a person who talks about games by providing her a meaningful personal experience of representation and changing her opinion on the value of subjective game reviews. Uh, Spencer and I have been fans of Laura's for quite some time, and it was super exciting to have her on the show. So without further ado, here's our interview with Laura Kate Dale. Hello to our wonderful guests, and thank you so much for joining us in the Virtual Pixel Therapy Studio. To start, would you mind sharing your name, pronouns, and just a little bit about how you spend your time? Uh, so my name is Laura, Laura Kate Dale. I go by Laura K. Buzz on the internet. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I spend most of my time writing and making podcasts and playing video games and doing, d- interconnecting those three interests in various ways. <laughs> Absolutely. And Laura, you are a prolific author and editor of titles including Uncomfortable Labels, Gender Euphoria, and most recently, Things I Learned from Mario's Butt. Um, I wanted to take a second to explore that last one with you. Um, In the (laughs) prologue of the book, uh, you write, this is not a book designed to objectify butts and view them as sexualized objects. This is a book aimed at learning about what they can teach us about their games, their characters, and their worlds. Um, So right off the bat, why butts? So the story for this is a little bit silly. Um, (laughs) Roll back about seven years ago, I was first trying to get um, a career off the ground in video game coverage, and I'd... I'd very suddenly lost a job. I'd come out of t- as trans and then very suspiciously been let go right afterwards. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to try and make a go at writing about games, I'm going to, you know, uh, now's the time to go for it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I set up a Patreon and was very desperately like, if by the end of a month I can make enough to cover my rent, this will be fine. And I went on Twitter and simply was, I simply said, what could I write that would get you to pay me a dollar a month? Mm. And I don't remember who it was, and I wish I could track down the tweet. I have many times tried to track down the tweet of whoever this was. Someone jokingly tweeted at me, video game butt reviews. (laughs) And I retweeted it as a joke. I thought it was a silly little goof. I was like, haha, that'll never be a thing. I had about 70 people tweet me back and say, I'll give you a dollar a month if you did that. I was like... I guess I have to. Um, and like it, it started as, okay, I've dug myself a little bit of a hole. What can I do mm. here? And I didn't, I wanted to find a unique angle if I was going to do it. And the approach I came up with was, look, this is a very silly topic that most people don't give the slightest bit of thought. Mm. It really isn't going to take much stopping and going, okay, what does this actually say? to have unique takes that no one's thought of. Like, it's not like there's a lot of competition in that space, and it took off. It was a successful <laughs> thing that I ended up making a book out of, and it was a lot of fun. Like, it's it's really fun to go, okay, here's just a really, a really pointless thing. Think a little too hard about it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like you mentioned, this is a series of butt critiques of various mm-hmm. characters in video games. And while it's silly, um, it's not just 
surface level. Like there are yeah. some really interesting connections that you draw, um, insights into characters, insights into uh, lore or or the or the world building in a game. Um, and I feel like drawing attention to something as granular as a character's butt, and then still having narrative threads to pull there, just really speaks to how rich and deeply layered like video game lore can be. Um, I just I was wondering if that resonated with you a bit, and and if this was really just surface level for you, or if you found that it was inspiring you to think more deeply about these games that's that's exactly the thing like it started off as something that was a little bit surface level there's a little bit of a a joke but like the more the more that you dig into this stuff the more that you realize like video games are very deliberately crafted nothing in them happens by accident everything that is there like particularly in modern games everything that exists had hundreds of hours painstakingly put into it and Mm. No matter what aspect of, like, I think you could really do this with any part of a video game character's design. I happen to pick butts, but I think (laughs) if you stop and go, hey, let's look at this consistent part of design that basically every single video game has and go, someone put some deliberate thought into this, what were they trying to say when they did that? It's amazing how much insight there is to be gleaned. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it's important to consider the meaning and the construction of bodies in gaming? I mean, there is a lot that is very stereotyped about how bodies are designed in video games. And there is a lot that is built on limitations of hardware, that is built on Mm. audience expectation, that is built Mm. on who you're marketing to. As I said before, there's, there's nothing that's accidental in a video game character, and be it this character is this way because of the the hardware they were designed on, or it's because, okay, we were trying to uh, market to X demographic. There is always some reason that things are the way they are. And, you know, in video games with authored characters, I mean, in any, in any kind of media where you are designing the body types that are going to be representative of what people experience, it's important to think about why are we representing people the way way we are Mm. perhaps even more so with video games because of the fact that because of the fact you're controlling these characters there's a sense of ownership there's a sense of identity there's a sense of connection that you know we shouldn't be thoughtlessly designing characters that people are gonna have that level of connection to Mm -hmm. and i don't know it's funny like i just feel like as a trans person playing games, I can assure you that I am i am definitely looking intently at every part of a character's body because there's, I, I feel like, oh, they're hip shape. Maybe they're a trans guy. Or my headcanon is now that this character is a trans guy. Or like, like I just find that like, um, I'm always sort of hyper analyzing every piece of a game to try to find pieces that resonate with me knowing that like not all games were designed with my experience in mind and most of them aren't <laughs> i mean a big part of that is obviously the um the active lack of representation that trans people have in mm-hmm. video games generally is that hey look if you're not going to give us representation and canonical representation we're going to we're going to go looking for it and if you give us even an inch, we're going to take the mile and be like, all right, that one's trans <laughs> yes. now, they're ours. <laughs> yes, we will. That's absolutely right. 
Um, so you're also working on a new book with your wife, um, Jane Aerith yes. Magnet, called Who Hunts the Whale, which is a mm. satiric fiction set at Supremacy Software, mm-hmm. an exploitative big budget game development studio. Um, the book is currently funding on Unbound, and we will make sure to drop the link on the show mm. notes for all of y'all at home. Um, but uh, tell us more about um, Who Hunts the Whale. Like, Why did satire feel like the most appropriate application to tell this story? Um, so this story ended up coming about, um, myself and my wife do a podcast called Queer and Pleasant Strangers, and we've done this podcast for about three years now, and one of the little recurring skits that we did for a long time was, um, it was originally called Inside the Boardroom of Electronic Actor Softworks, a Mm. mashup of various video game studio names that we are not putting on a published book, but, um... (laughs) It's one of those things that the video game industry is exhausting sometimes, um, Mm -hmm. and more so as time has gone on. Um, It's one of those things where if you talk about what the video game industry is doing in stark, direct terms, it can be really bleak, it can be really exhausting, it can be something that people don't want to engage with because, you know, video games are an escapist medium, they're something that people use to, you know have time away from the grim realities of the world and Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, directly saying, hey, we need to talk to you about X, Y, and Z bad things that are happening can be not a good way to engage with people. Mm. And I think both for ourselves and for wanting an outlet to try and get those things connected with other people, satire was a lens through which we could go, look, we're going to exaggerate a bit and talk a little, like, a little far-fetched to the degree it's happening. But what we're talking about are based on real things that this industry does that you should be critical of. And while it may not be at the extremes, you know, we're fictionally representing, the reality is it's not that far off. And we can have a joke about it, but at the end of the day, like, these are all bad things that people need to be more aware of and more critical of. And yeah, for us, it was just a good way to get our feelings out about that without being like, right, time for doom and gloom while we tell you all the lesson about how bad the world is. Absolutely. No, that's such a important thing to be a consideration to be keeping in mind. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it seems like a really great way of, of reaching people who might initially be sort of resistant to talking about these things. Um, it also feels like this like genre of fiction set within the culture of gaming uh, feels like something I'm I'm starting to see emerging. Like, it feels like the titles I think of that are gaming related are like Ready Player One, Otherworld, the Warcross series. Like, it's like action, maybe even like young adult leaning kind of like stories. Um, but this side, kind of seeing like how the sausage gets made for better or for worse, or kind of addressing the what's going on behind the scenes in a game, not just the people playing it, um, I just think is really fascinating. Um, I don't yeah. know, just wondering if that resonates it's, with you at all. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, I've never been a fan, particularly, of the kind of uh, video game-centric fiction that is like, hey, here's a bunch of things you recognize, and it's just sort of, <laughs> it's a power fantasy that we layered some yes. techno babble on top of and pretended it's video games. Like, we mentioned hit points at some point, but <laughs> I think... Our industry probably wasn't ready to move away from that to a certain point. Like, I think there is a certain degree of literacy of, you know, terminology and understanding of the industry that is required for, like, 
for the average game playing person to engage with books that are about the industry and fiction set within the industry, we had to wait to a point where knowledge of how the industry operates has become a lot more commonplace than it used to be. We're in the mm. era of you know documentaries behind the scenes of video game studios where making ofs of games are a thing that people actively seek out where people are very invested in the news cycle of like what's going on at the studio that makes the games and it's nice that there's enough understanding enough background understanding of what this industry is and how it functions that we can tell those kind of stories now i think Mm -hmm. absolutely like i hopefully that kind of transparency will only lead to more improvements and more rapid change Um, and, you know, you you touched on this a bit about how, like, it can feel really overwhelming. It can feel very doom and gloom trying to consider just how much work there is to be done within the gaming industry, um, and how messed up it can be. And it seems like every day we see new stories. Um, and just as someone who, like, I, I feel like you have this, um, really positive way of, of talking about these topics that are um, important. And and like you said, making it approachable for people who might be um, going to games as an escape and don't want to necessarily consider the harder parts of engaging with this hobby. So like what inspires you to keep writing about and participating in the games industry, knowing that you're also familiar with its uglier sides? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think ultimately the way I try and look at it is that I'm hard on this industry because I want it to be better. I love the things that this industry produces, and I do not like how we get there. And I think Mm. that, I don't think it's a case of, you know, we have to, we can't play any games, we can't have any fun with games anymore because they're an industry that has problems. It's like, no, we can do both. We can have fun, we can celebrate the things that video games are doing well, the places where they're advancing, the places where the medium works, but we have to do it alongside, like, Look, video games can and should be better. They're an industry that is raking in more profits than it has ever done Mm. before. There is more money flowing into this industry than ever. We should be saying, like, look, your games are great, but can you please pour some of that money back into making sure your company treats its employees better? It's, I mean, it's the problem with capitalism in general. Funnel some Mm -hmm. of your funds back into making the lives of workers better. But, like... Yeah, that's the thing is I try to come at it not from I'm criticizing this because I hate this industry. It's I'm criticizing this industry because it could be better so much easier. It has the tools, it has the resources. It just needs people to care enough to keep like not let the fact that bad things have gone on drift away into memory. Mm. Because that's that's the thing I'm hopeful about. I think. I think the biggest thing that is needed for change to happen in the games industry is for people to just remember that bad things have happened and to not just let companies sweep it under the rug next time there's an exciting announcement. Because, yeah, you can be excited about that new game that's coming out, but be like, hey, I'm excited about that game. Let's not forget however that thing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, So with all that being said, do you identify as a gamer? (laughs) It's a tricky question to answer because I feel like that term carries a lot of weight at this point. Um, It's so funny how many people say that. They always say Mm -hmm. it it carries so much weight. Yeah. (laughs) What's behind that? Yeah. Yeah. It's. I feel like 
saying I'm a gamer, I think suggests a I think it suggests a level of my interest is my identity. Mm. And I think where a lot of the baggage of that term comes from is when people say I'm a gamer, they mean video games are my one thing. They are the thing that I invest everything I am and everything I have into. Mm. And I think that desire to wrap identity up into something that you consume as a piece of media leads to a lot of the negativity we see in gaming spaces of um, people angry at other people because they like a, a game console that they don't like, or the um, how, how dare you say something bad about this studio because they make a game I like. It's mm. this idea that if you attack or you criticize the thing I like, you're attacking and criticizing me, the person. Mm. And I think I think that level of I've wrapped up my identity in the media I consume mm-hmm. is somewhat part and parcel to I am a gamer. That is an identity signifier I have for myself. And I think that's why I feel some caution about the term. It, it feels like it is often connected to video games are my identity. Don't criticize them or I will be hurt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would love to see people who identify as a gamer in that way to kind of realize their own autonomy as an enjoyer of the thing to want to leave their mark on it, to want to, you know, shape it to meet, you know, their, their expectations and what they find important instead of just buying into what, whatever company has defined as like, what to play or how to play it or yeah. what, how stories can be told. It's it's one of the things that disappoints me most is some of the most vocal fans of video games out there have some of the least desire to tell the people making their games, you can make things better, you could improve X, Y, and Z, you can be held to a higher standard. And like that's what I wish. I wish the people mm-hmm. who cared most about games would use that energy to go, Games can be made better. They can be made in better conditions. They can be made as be- have better re- end result products. We can expect better of the industry we're in, and it's okay to be critical of being critical of the things we love. Doesn't mean we don't love them. It means mm. we recognize they can be better, and we want them to be better. Yeah, <laughs> it means we love them so much that we're impassioned enough to talk about <laughs> things like this. Like. Exactly. If we didn't care, we wouldn't say anything. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, um, what's your personal history with video games? Um, I started playing video games when I was uh pretty pretty young. Uh, my older brother back in the probably mid-90s, gave me a second-hand Super Nintendo of his for a birthday once, uh, received with Mario Paint with its little <laughs> wow. uh, mouse pointer. Uh, that was the only Super NES game I had at first, and I spent a lot of time doing the um, <laughs> making music minigame mm. they had in there. Um, but my like, I had video games. I played some video games. Where I remember really going, video games are the thing. They're the Mm. thing that I love. They're the thing I want to dedicate my time to consuming. Was um, being gifted a Nintendo 64 Mm. with Ocarina of Time. Uh. Um, 
as an autistic kid um, growing up, I had very little in the way of uh, social ability. I was very bad at interacting with other people. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt very insular, very isolated. And playing through Ocarina of Time was this really revelatory experience for me because I could go off on this big grand adventure into this big wide world, have really simple, predictable interactions with other people that didn't ever go wrong. Mm. And be great and grand and achieve huge things, which, like, interacting with people and then that not going wrong and feeling like I could do things with my life were not experiences I was used to as an autistic mm. kid. And it it gave me this real sense of, like, hope and grandiousness that was like, I need I need more of this, I need these wonderful little worlds where me being weird isn't a problem. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It reminds me mm. of, um, we had uh, Dr. Devin Price on the show a few episodes ago, um, author mm. of Laziness Does Not Exist. And something that they were talking about was that games can really give, like the fact that it's a controlled world with mm. predictable, uh, yeah. like in our daily lives, there's never, there's very rarely an instance where if we do everything that we're told to do, we do it the right way, that there's a guarantee yeah. that there will be a reward and that we will grow. Mm. Um, and in games, just the fact that it's able yeah. to give you that in a way that can feel very real, very emotionally engaging. Like how else yeah. can you get that from what other art form can you get that? Exactly. Um, and sort of from there, the other very formative one mm -hmm. uh, early on that I think really locked me into video games or an art form that were going to always going to be very special to me was um, uh, Pokemon Red mm. on the original Game Boy. Um, I, from a young age, have always had a very numbers and facts and digits and statistics centric brain, and mm. I was. I was just starting school at exactly the right time that Pokemon was absolutely blowing up. It was like every the, the one thing that like everyone wanted to talk about. <laughs> and I had enough of a brain for memorizing stuff that it was the impetus for like some of my my earliest positive social experiences. It wasn't long lived, mm. but there was a brief period where Pokemon was very popular and I could tell you like, ah, oh, I can go, that that Pokemon's going to evolve at that level, it's going to learn that mm. move at that level, this is where you find that, that is where all the things are. That level of obsessive knowledge and desire to only talk about one thing very briefly overlapped with what was popular and mm. that very briefly gave me like a social safety topic. It was something that I could talk about and that people wanted to hear about, mm. and people wanted my obsessive knowledge about, and it really opened up a lot of like my ability to communicate with other other people and to go like, oh, okay, that I I can I can do people when I have a thing <laughs> I can talk about that they're okay with. <laughs> yes, we're finally all working from the same frame of reference. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I think like that's. <sighs> Having a common, having having something that is a common frame of reference, like I think it's why I got into talking about video games as a mm. career. Eventually, is like it was trying to find an outlet where this genre of content, this medium that I had spent so long absorbing myself in, being like, right, if I can just build a little world around myself where everyone wants to hear about that thing I know a lot about. Mm. Everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And why do you play games? Like, what do they mean to you? 
it depends what game uh, as to what it means, but I think generally I find that I'm most invested in games when they are a way for me to lose myself to the world in a story. Um, there's a lot of forms of storytelling that I struggle to engage with. Um, I have aphantasia, which is a condition where I can't uh, visualize things in my mind. I have no visual imagination. I mm. struggle with books as a result. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the ability to imagine things. Uh, that, that medium just doesn't work for me. Movies are, you know, movies movies are great, but there is a lack of engagement with them. It's like, okay, that's their story that's happening. It's not yes. mine. Video games are a medium of storytelling where it's like, I can, I don't have to imagine because it's all there and I can be a part of the adventure. I can feel like I am connected to what's happening. And there is something about that being connected to the action that just makes me feel so much more engaged and invested than I do with any other form of, of media. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's just a place to go on adventures and to feel away from the world a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That, that resonates. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on this show, we like to ask guests to talk about a specific game that had a real influence on their life. And you came to us with to the moon, a game that I, ravenously played uh <laughs> two weeks ago and was completely blown away um and just for folks who may not have heard of the game before um to the moon is a 2011 psychological drama um it's an adventure game that follows two doctors who offer to fulfill a dying man's last wish um, by actually entering his memories and altering them in order to make him believe that his life took a different course um due to the this type of procedure in this world um it's really only used as an end-of-life treatment treatment um, such that the the new life that the person is imagining becomes the last thing that they remember before they pass on. Um, so to start, I mean, first of all, whoa. <laughs> Second of all, what's your relationship with To The Moon? Like, when did you originally play it? Um, so I originally played this game uh, very shortly after it came out. Um, I'd had it recommended to me by someone um, who... I was running an indie site at the time, and someone who was running the site with me was like, this game's amazing, get yeah. on it now, jump on it. And I knew nothing about it going in. I was playing it because someone I knew had recommended it, and that mm. was about all I had. Um, can I can I talk spoilers? Because I want to get into spoilers yeah. to, oh, to yeah. really talk about like why this is a thing. So Yeah. Um, <laughs> On the surface, this this game is a game about this old man trying to, you know, live out his his dying wish and trying to go to the moon, and we're trying to work out why that's the case. But it very quickly becomes evident the more of this game you play that he's not the main character of this story. I don't think um, his wife River is probably the most important character this to this narrative. Um, the story's told a little out of order and you go backwards and sort of learn more about her as you go through. But at its core, this is a story about an autistic woman who struggles to communicate with her husband. And mm -hmm. after he has a um, uh, an injury that causes him to have some issues with his memory, the two of them start having quite a big emotional uh, disconnect where something that is very important to River and how she perceives their relationship and how she communicates with him, something that's a 
safety connection point is no longer something they see eye to eye on. And it's about this story of her really struggling to just desperately try and connect with her husband, but in generally struggling to connect with people in general. Um, Mm -hmm. I played this game in 2011 when it came out, which was um, maybe two or so years after I had been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Um, Mm. I'd grown up always knowing there was something not right with me. Spent a lot of time going back and forth in and out of um, mental health assessments that never quite nailed down what was Mm. happening. Um, A lot of it was very, well, you can talk and you spoke on time, so it's probably not autism, we're just not going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not being disruptive to other people around you, so we're not going to label you. A lot of that going on. Um, And this game really resonated with me for... A lot of reasons. Um, it was one of the first times I had experienced a narrative um, that centred an autistic character and specifically an autistic woman. Mm. Um, autistic women don't get representation. Um, there's the extreme male brain theory of autism that for many, many years, um, autism was assumed to be you are too male that made you autistic and as Mm. such women were chronically underdiagnosed as autistic Mm. for decades and as such you you get very little autistic representation of women um but like the thing i think that hit me really hard as well at the time was i was also coming out as trans at around the same time and there was a lot of like really bringing up of I don't know how to connect to people Mm. and I'm struggling with my sense of identity and how I get that across to other people and playing through this narrative that really took that seriously, that took the isolation that it can feel when you're desperately trying, like when you're desperately trying to reach out and be connect with other people Mm -hmm. and that just isn't happening it's a side of autism I hadn't seen represented basically at all in media. Um, Mm. Basically any representations of autistic characters I had seen had been the wacky, obsessive, um, Mm. savant level nerd. One of the things that is a really common misunderstanding about people on the autism spectrum is this idea that they don't want or need emotional connection. Mm. It is a really common uh, perception of like, oh, it's okay. They, you know, they, they, they just, they like to spend a lot of time alone because people are <laughs> socially tiring. It's like, no, people can be socially tiring, but still need social connection. And um, I think that this game's portrayal of River really handles that very well. Um, there's a whole section in there where she talks about looking up at stars in the sky like lighthouses at a distance, um, reaching out but not being able to hear anything back. And it's uh, a metaphor and an analogue that really touched me at the time, that really spoke to me. Um, And then I think the other thing that's really important about this this narrative um, in terms of its representation is it doesn't just have a singular autistic woman carry the narrative. There are two different autistic women, which, considering I basically never seen autistic women at all mm. in media, to get two of them in one thing was great. But yeah, two hundred percent more representation. <laughs> exactly. But like the the thing that was really interesting is that um, the the two autistic women that they have in this narrative 
have very different experiences of um I think masking would be the best term mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. um lived experience learning to hide autistic traits to survive. Um River as a character has basically never felt it. It's it's unclear in the narrative whether it, it's that she can't mask or that she has chosen not to. That is left a little up to interpretation, but it is like, no, she does not hide any of her autistic traits and you know, for better or worse, that has caused some roadblocks for her in life, but it has also meant that she has the support she needs when she needs it because she's visibly autistic. The other character has done a lot of work to push and hide and go, no, I'm fine, I'm normal. And there's this really beautiful speech in the middle of the game where she talks about not feeling able to take support and help when she needs it anymore because she's she's played the part so well that when she tells people i need i need help with this i'm struggling with this i'm autistic and i'm struggling with it people's response is well you don't seem autistic mm. and as someone whose childhood was very i was pressured a lot by my parents to do things i was incredibly uncomfortable with to have a semblance of normalcy i could wear as a as an outfit mm-hmm. that really got me um, reading through this speech where she's just talking about like, I can do it, but I still feel just as all, all of the stuff is still going on inside me. But when I ask for help now, people don't think I need it. Mm-hmm. Really hit me very hard. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating, fascinating story and one that just. It really hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there as well, like um, about River's husband, this uh, ostensibly the main character. Um, a lot of his backstory, as you eventually get to it, is about like the start of his relationship with River. And there's a lot of stuff in there that um, felt very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the start of his relationship with River is all about... Um, Dating the weird kid because he wants to be more interesting. Oh, mm. you're different and weird. Maybe my proximity to you will make me interesting by association without me having to be weird. Mm. Which really hit home as someone who had some people who did that growing up. Like some of the people I thought were friends in young childhood ultimately ended up being people who were like, oh yeah, I wanted a weird, interesting friend. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, like there's so many aspects of um my particular lived experience mm-hmm. that just really felt seen and yeah. represented in a way that I can't think of any other piece of media that's ever done so. Absolutely. That's incredible. I too, when you were talking about Isabel, um, there was a this is a quote from a piece, uh, To the Moon, Representation Matters, an article by Era Lee on Able Gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they write Isabel explains at one point that she envies River for not having had the training she did and therefore remaining authentically herself instead of learning to mask her true personality, something many autistic adults struggle with. The fact that River is able to have a successful life and relationship without having been forced to learn to appear, quote unquote, normal to others is a wonderful example to set. Um, And I just felt like that, like, to your point of that, by having not just one but two 
um, women characters with autism in the story. Um, it mm-hmm. allows for more uh, diverse depictions of what it means to have autism to, to be to be depicted. We're not just focusing on one character and 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 using that. Uh, to understand the whole spectrum of experiences. And of course, not just two characters yeah. can do that either. But um, I just, just mm. what, to what you said, um, I, really, I really felt like that came through uh, in the game, which was incredible to see. Yeah, it's... Yeah, the, the, the bit of that speech, and I, I've got it in front of me, the bit of it that always, mm. it, that always sticks with me, I think, is um, like she, she starts off by, by saying... Um, I'm an actress because I've been doing it my whole life um, at practically every moment. I'm, I'm good at it because acting is the only option I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but River, she never did that. She remained an outcast and refused to learn how to step against it. I don't know if it was by choice or by limit, by bravery or cowardice, but there are days I can't stand faking being normal and I realize that it's too late. The person people know is an act and the real me has long become a stranger and I just envy her. I'm like, mm. it's just gets gets to the core of it mm-hmm. it's yeah it, it the thing i love about it i think is it 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 gets to the heart of the fact that like different experiences of being autistic are not inherently easier or more difficult they are different and they have their own struggles they come with um a thing i talk about in some of the books about autism i've written in the past um is the misconception that autism is a uh, when people say it's a spectrum there's this idea it's a binary line from more autistic to less autistic mm-hmm. and there are things people will place that are like ah you can speak you're less autistic okay you have this you're more autistic so often it's not nowhere near that simple it's a spider diagram it's mm-hmm. a bunch of different things going in a bunch of different directions because like just because someone's outward presentation um gives off less obvious tells of being autistic does not mean that their interior experience of that condition is any stronger or weaker inherently. Mm-hmm. And like the, this really gets at that, I think. You also mentioned that the game influenced your approach to critiquing games. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about that. Well, when I first played through this, I had a really difficult time working out how I wanted to talk about it. Um, Again, this was back in 2011. I wasn't doing this professionally as a job. I didn't have any formal experience. And I'd been very used to writing, like, I'd, I'd grown up on video game websites doing reviews that claimed to be objective that were like, yes or no, is this good or bad? Mm. Um, like, very, here are the pros and cons lists. And I'd, I'd come into Games Critique with a similar outlook. And I think this was one of the first video games that made me stop and have that moment that, like, it's not a particularly grand revelation, but it was to me at the time, was... How do I talk about something that mechanically is very simple? Like, mm. this game is largely walk around, talk <laughs> to people, occasionally do a, a flipping over squares picture puzzle. Like, there's very little gameplay here. Mm-hmm. There is very little non-linearity. There is very little that would inherently say this has to be made as a video game, as a medium. Mm. But that it had such a profound personal experience to me that I was like, I cannot bring myself to go 
well, yeah, but it's not very video gamey, so that bad score or whatever. And <laughs> yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those moments for me where I sort of internalized how pointless the idea of trying to make a lot of uh, video game criticism objective is, um, and the yeah. value in not necessarily being like, look, a review isn't right for everything. Sometimes you just have to go, look, I'm going to talk spoilers. This is why this thing matters to me. Are you interested? Um, yeah, it, it changed my perspective on like the importance of how we talk about games, but it also really opened my eyes to the importance of representation. Like I, mm. I grew up without a lot of um, representation for any aspects of myself that were very positive. Um, as a trans person, most of the representation I saw of myself was a uh, comedy punchline or v- uh, vicious villain. As mm-hmm. an autistic person, all I really had was um, savant men who were mm. geeky and punchlines. It It was one of the first pieces of media I saw that made me really go, oh, other people feel the way I do. And realizing how special that was and feeling like, oh goodness, this is something that people generally deserve to feel. Um mm-hmm. like there there was a there was a piece of media for trans-related stuff at the uh, around the same time that I found as well, but it was it really was a year of realizing like, oh, it can make a really big difference to just have a single positive example to look to and go, I see myself there. Like, it sticks with you having those kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. It really does. Um, I I think, too, what you were saying about reviews, about how by the nature of a review, we we try to kind of break it down into quantifiable pieces so that we can determine a scale at which to compare each game. But I feel like by the nature of game-making, it so often you so often have games that are breaking or bending those rules that we set out that yeah. don't really like how do you even uh describe like what what counts as a video game like it feels like more and more mm-hmm. that is changing and so uh i just really appreciate that kind of approach to reviews because you're absolutely right we we can't really judge them all on the same metrics yeah it's it's one of those things that the more you think about it the more you realize like okay what is it what does it actually tell you if a multiplayer only first person shooter is a 9 out of 10 but a single player narrative choose your own adventures a 7 out of 10 does mm-hmm. that tell you one's like they're both they're both so incomparable it's it, it it's like trying to compare different art forms like mm-hmm. i think Something really unique about video games is that the more we mechanically diversify what video games are, the more that it feels redundant to treat them all as one monolith and to go, these are objectively the best video games. It's like, well, well, yeah, but what a video game is varies wildly depending on what you're playing. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, there there is a value to a certain degree of here's what works, here's what doesn't, etc. Like, trying to get some facts and figures out about games. But I think I enjoy games critique and I find it most interesting when it is just someone saying, I can't promise how you're going to feel, but this <laughs> is what I experienced. Here is a very subjective take on it. Mm-hmm. Subjective opinions are fascinating. They're what oh, get yeah. me interested in stuff. It's where the, 
it's where the most passion tends to be. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, so have you, as a games critic, like, have you played anything like To the Moon since? Anything that stands out to you that affected you in, in a similar way? Uh, okay. So one video game that jumps to mind that was very, very impactful to me and for very different reasons, not for nearly such a I'm being represented kind of way, but more in terms of making me think about what video games could and could not be and like what they should have obligations to. Mm. Uh, the original Life is Strange. Um, mm. it, is a, it is a kind of janky, kind of awkwardly written game. Uh, for mm-hmm. anyone who's not played it, it's a narrative choose-your-own-adventure about a... Um, a young adult woman who discovers she has the power to rewind time. Um, the second episode of this, um, the second episode of that first Life is Strange game um, centers a lot around this character overusing her time rewinding powers to the point that she does not have access to them at a time when she needs them. And mm. the way that that plays out is that uh, there is a scene of a person who is going to commit suicide on a roof and mm. trying to talk them down. Um, I think the thing that was really fascinating in hindsight is the willingness those game developers were willing to go to to not shy away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some criticisms of the way they did it, and I I find those very interesting. Um it is very possible that if you don't say the right things to this person, they will commit suicide. Um, or attempt to, anyway. Mm-hmm. The video game then, a few seconds later, gives you a very video game what percentage of people successfully uh, saved her? Oh, God. Yes. As, yeah. as someone who had, in the past, had a friend commit suicide who had not you know, I tried to talk them down and mm. had spent a long time like trying to go like, it's not my fault, there's nothing I could have mm. done, you know, that, that isn't how reality is. It was very jarring to fail to save this fictional person and then go, 85% of people managed to save her, you're in the minority that isn't good enough uh, to save her. Mm. And I have a lot of criticisms of that, but it, I, I, yeah. think it's, I think it's really interesting seeing like, in terms of like the birth of this medium and this medium trying to grow up, the conflict that sometimes happens between the stories we're trying to tell and remembering them in the context of like how video games are made. And yeah. like that that scene was undeniably powerful. And the effect it had was it it, it really emotionally got me. And mm-hmm. that is what it was trying to do. But like I it makes me be very critical of like, hey, hey, video games, you need to be really careful with the scenes that you put into yourselves because yeah, that scene was fantastic, but you needed some kind of like aftercare there if you're gonna do it the way right. you did. Because you need to you need to recognize you are putting control into people's hands and that certain narratives have more weight when you give players control over them. Like I'd have been less impacted by a movie having a scene yep. where a character doesn't stop another character killing themselves. But when you're in control, you as the player feel onus. There is a feeling of that is my fault as yes. a human being. And like 
I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that that scene can't, you can't give a player control over that in a video game. But I think that like, at the time when that game came out, video game developers were not yet aware of like, were not thinking about the consequences of certain narrative beats are going to hurt more if you put them in players' hands. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, I think about that scene a lot. I don't think it was handled well. But yeah. I find it endlessly fascinating from a what makes our medium unique compared to other storytelling mediums kind of way. Mm-hmm. Right. And like the empathy that is sort of necessary because like people feel so passionate, like they hold on to these stories and these stories resonate yeah. so much because they are rooted in yeah. real human experiences. Yeah. And when you're putting someone in the driver's seat, like you could really end up traumatizing someone if you're not yeah. careful and I, I think like particularly for games where you make narrative moral choices and they have impact i think that is something really important to consider because like there is a really big difference between showing something happening and going your choices led to something happening something happening is your fault that emotionally feels different mm-hmm. that's right Laura Kate Dale, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, how can folks keep up with your work and find you online? Uh, you can find me online at Laura K Buzz on all forms of social media, really Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, YouTube, Patreon. Uh, that's the one that pays for bills generally. <laughs> um, I do a bunch of things. I have several books that are already out. Um, Uncomfortable Labels is about living at the intersection of being autistic and trans and how the two of those uh, intersect with each other. Uh, Things I Learned from Mario's Butt, we talked about earlier. It's a big illustrated coffee table book of video game character butt reviews. (laughs) Uh, Gender Euphoria is an anthology of uh, non-cis people's positive gender-affirming real-life experiences. Um, Who Hunts the Whale? is currently available on Unbound. You can pre-order a copy. There are various backer rewards and things, but it's it's up there. You can go put some money and you'll get it when it comes out. Um, other than that, I do some podcasts. I did one called Pixel Squirt, where we talk about video game character pornography, um, <laughs> but like through a very analytical, what like what is this, what does this tell us uh, kind of, of lens? Course. Of course, um, <laughs> pod position where we talk about video games and whether they're great or perfect, and definitely not the <laughs> politics of them. Definitely not. Um, Queer and Pleasant Strangers is a podcast I do with my wife where we talk about things that aren't video games, like comics, uh, board games, TV. And I'm on a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Dice Funk. Uh, each season is its own self-contained story. I'm on seasons three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Jump into whichever one you like. They're all their own little micro stories. Great. Awesome. Well, lots of options for you folks, no matter what your interests are. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly if you're not up for contributing monetarily but you enjoyed this episode you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and following us on twitter and instagram at pixel therapy pod That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O, 
take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news reviews and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Thank you so much to Laura for this week's recommendation. So excited to talk to you all about Deaf Rainbow UK. First a Facebook group, then a website, and now a community-run organization offering trainings, consultations, and surveys aimed at building a better world for deaf LGBTQIA plus people in the UK and around the world. Deaf Rainbow UK provides information and resources for deaf queer folks, bringing attention to the lived experiences of folks who fall within this intersection of marginalization. To learn more, access resources, volunteer, and or donate, visit deafrainbowuk.org.uk. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll Just be back soon. Just every now and then. Give them a hug. A big hug. A big, warm, spooky October hug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll be back soon with some more Pixel, Pixel Therapy. therapy. Bye bye. <laughs>